I'm Chad Mann, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact technology is having on the law itself. Today's episode, we're talking to Victor Bornstein. He's the founder of JustPoint, the technology company that uses AI to match personal injury clients with the right lawyer for their case. Our guest today, Victor Bornstein, who's the founder of a legal tech startup called JustPoint, doesn't have a legal background. In fact, he has a background very different from legal. He has a PhD in biomedical sciences with an emphasis in immunology. And he worked in the medical field for most of his life before he and his co-founder launched JustPoint in 2018. Despite working in the medical world, Victor caught the startup bug a few years ago when he worked with a venture capital fund and he was providing research on startups in the medical industry. While doing this research and looking at medical data, Victor started thinking that technology could help people who are not doctors make sense of medical data and make better medical decisions. And that's where he got the idea for JustPoint. Initially, he just set out to build a tool that would help doctors and their insurers defend malpractice claims. But he quickly learned that selling to insurance companies was not an easy task. So he pivoted and decided to build an artificial intelligence tool that would help personal injury plaintiffs find the right lawyer for their case by analyzing the type of injury they had, taking a look at the issues in the case, and also analyzing track records of attorneys handling similar cases. As we will hear, because Victor spent a good chunk of his life in Brazil, his network in the United States was not huge when he decided to launch JustPoint. Not only did he rely on cold-calling investors, he also met his co-founder, who happened to work at Google via a cold email. So you might be wondering, since Victor has this extensive medical background, and a PhD, no less, why didn't he become a doctor? I never considered actually becoming a doctor. I always liked the research side of things. So when I was a young boy, like my mom would take me to science fairs and all this kind of stuff, you know. So I always liked the idea of generating knowledge uh, as a scientist rather than applying the knowledge itself, which, you know, is a simplification of research and medicine. But it, it tends to be like researchers generate more knowledge and doctors tend to apply more knowledge. For me, the generation of knowledge was always interesting. So then I decided to stay in the space. I thought I was going to stay there the rest of my life, basically, in the, in the research side of the things. But then when I came to the U.S., I was exposed to things that you're not exposed to in Brazil, like entrepreneurship, startups, those things. No one ever discussed them with me in Brazil. So when I came here, I heard about them and, and liked them. So I decided to, to try it out. When you were here in America for a while, you were working at healthcare facilities, right? Exactly. First at Mount Sinai as a PhD student. Then I worked at the Texas Medical Center. And then I came back to Mount Sinai as a professor. And I saw somewhere you had a, a tech angle at one of these medical centers or you helped develop some technology that they used? Yeah. So first, when I was at Mount Sinai doing my PhD, I got very interested in translational science, like being able to get science from the lab and take it to the bench side, the bad side. And I tried to develop some technologies there. I developed some technologies and then I started working with that. I worked in a technology transfer center in, at Mount Sinai Hospital. And then I worked at a few different spots. First at a venture capital firm in New York City, helping them understand startups from a scientific perspective. And then at the tax the tax medical center, helping them develop technologies for the tax medical center. And then came back to Mount Sinai doing the same thing. At, at both the Mount Sinai Hospital system and the tax medical system, I was identifying unmet needs, like things that we could do to allow you know doctors and nurses and the healthcare system to work better. And then building those um, solutions using technology, basically. And you mentioned you were working for a VC company to, you know, help with research and uh, apply that research to business investments. Were those medical-related companies that the VCs were looking at? 
Exactly. The, the idea is that they were just launching a new VC firm. And it was a guy who was very experienced VC, but he was working for Mars before. And then he decided to open his own venture capital firm. And then they wanted to invest a lot in genomics companies. And they knew, of course, everything there is to know about the business side of that. They wanted more help on the scientific side of uh, analysis of these this companies. So I, I was the opposite. I knew all the scientific things. I did not know the business things. So for me, it was a nice opportunity to you know, get exposed to this and learn. And for them, of course, it was nice to have someone who was a scientist who could understand the scientific angle of those companies. Otherwise, you end up with things like Theranos, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> whenever you have like people who don't understand science making scientific decisions, you know, bad things happen. So I was grateful that they brought me in and they gave me the opportunity to help them understand those companies. So it sounds like this entrepreneurial bug bit you. You were exposed to it here in America. You weren't necessarily exposed to it in Brazil. So you get involved with VCs, you advise companies, but you decided to make the jump and start your own company. I also saw you invest in other companies too. Why'd you make the jump to legal rather than medical? Now, I know that there's a medical component that we'll get into in a second, but why didn't you just do a straight medical startup? You know, it was interesting. It was um, serendipitous. It was not by design. When I looked at all the unmet needs that I saw at Mount Sinai Hospital and at the Texas Medical Center, one of the needs that I was most intrigued about was the need of people who are not doctors to understand medical data. And, you know, there's a lot of software being built for doctors to do better clinical decision. Watson. Watson's a good example, right? Yep. There's a lot of movement on that side and a lot of good things being done. And then we thought, you know, it's more competitive for us if we want to build software for doctors. But there's even a bigger industry, and it's a, it's a huge industry, trying to understand how to, how to make decisions using medical data, right? So, for example, actuaries and insurance companies or people doing billing for hospitals. So we thought, you know, this is an interesting space where we can probably add a lot of value, allowing people to understand medical data faster. It's almost like an e-discovery system. So how do we make software that allows people to make decisions faster outside who are not doctors? And then I was looking and doing research in all these different areas where we could have help. The insurance side or medical malpractice side and the personal injury side came as one of the spots where we could have help and add value. And I started actually from the insurance perspective. I thought, you know, let's build software so that doctors, when they have a lawsuit against them, they can make decisions uh, on the defense side. You know, decisions can be made faster and cheaper. And that we, we got from that angle. It was a medical legal angle. And it was honestly very difficult to sell software to that side of the industry. The defense side is not as incentivized as the plaintiff side on the legal space to so adopt technologies to make themselves more efficient just because of the way the billing system works. So we were trying to sell it to the defense side of uh, medical malpractice cases, an uphill battle, to be honest. And Give your elevator pitch for JustPoint. You run into somebody at a, at a barbecue and they say, hey, what do you do? I'm a founder. I'm one of the founders at JustPoint. What do you tell me? So it's a platform that allows people, users, to select their attorneys for personal injury. So it's very simple. And by personal injury, it's generally medical malpractice too, right? Now it's personal injury overall. So it's um, car accident, sexual assault, you name it. And the need comes from observing that when people are just going through medical injury and, and they think it was a medical mistake or they got into a car accident, they have to now find counsel. And it's very difficult to know who to choose from because you have all these ads that don't say much about outcomes. They just, you know, have an easy to memorize phone number uh, and you see this big 
spending being done in this space, right? Because that has been working for a long time. But for the plaintiff, it's very difficult to know who is going to be the best attorney for you. Do you go with a big firm, with a smaller firm that have capital to actually pursue the litigation? Do they don't like basically what are the, what what is going on behind the, the curtains? And then just point is us getting data from all these litigators and understanding who are the best at each industry in each space based on previous performance. And I know that usually lawyers have to say, you know, previous performance does not indicate future outcome, but we notice that it actually indicates, it gives you a very good perspective into what might happen. For example, if a litigator is choosing to settle claims too quickly because they don't want to go through the the whole process of, you know, litigation is is expensive and time-consuming, and they do that as a standard practice, they tend to often get lower payouts for their plaintiffs. It might come faster by lower payout. So does that actually sync up with what the plaintiff is looking for? So all those type of inputs are things that we take into consideration. Let's say I'm in an auto accident or I'm a, I suffer injury at a hospital. I want to file a medical malpractice suit. I go to JustPoint.com. I enter a little bit of information about my claim or potential claim. And then there's AI underlying your platform, right? That takes a look at the claim and pairs you with the best attorney for that claim. Now, is it looking at the attorneys that have handled similar cases? Is it looking at that and their performance and how they, what, what do they settle claims they just alluded to? What's it looking at? So you come in, you submit your claim. We have someone calling you and we have a doctor calling you. So it's a different process than, you know, law firms because law firms, of course, it's difficult to afford to have a doctor calling you directly uh, and we can make them more efficient so we can make it make sense business-wise. So we have a doctor reaching out to you we try to match your specialty if it is medical malpractice. So if you have a, you know, an issue with your cardiologist, we try to match it with the cardiologist. But even though, if it, even if it's not a cardiologist, often it has a lot of value. And then that doctor is going to ask you a few questions, and they're going to be mostly on the clinical side. When they're doing that, they are understanding what they have on their side, software that understands them on, uh, which questions to ask, what we leading to malpractice in that kind of uh, case. The first outreach from JustPoint to a prospective client with a claim is from a medical professional, not from an intake, a legal intake, not from a lawyer. Exactly. So it's just trying to understand, you know, one is how to add value to the person on the other side because they often have a lot of medical questions as well. And then they're, of course, representing the lawyers, but um, they are medical professionals. And then they do two things. They're trying to understand the medical merits of your claim and also, for example, damages and anything that might have happened. And also the potential payout if you claim. And that's important because that allows us to match with the, with the attorneys. And the potential payout, we have a software that has 300,000 historical claims. And it uses those historical claims to extrapolate and understand how much each claim should receive in the future based on uh, a few data points. For example, what type of claim it is, the age of the claimant, uh, the state, and basically 11 data points. And where do you get this data? So we got it from insurance companies and law firms mostly. Now we also have our own data points that we have claims who came through our system and got settlements. But historically, it has been mostly insurance companies and law firms. The doctor talks to the prospective client. You then identify an attorney you think to be a good fit. You connect the client and the attorney, right? Exactly. And then to identify the good fit, actually, we already we use some of the software as well. So we let's say someone has a um, cancer misdiagnosis claim in Ohio and they are looking for a medical malpractice attorney. So we understand that we have a lot of the Ohio firms in our system, and we have actually, we're right now working in 31 states. But then let's focus in Ohio in this, in this example. 
we get their historical settlements, their historical claims. We know how they perform. We know the strategy. We know what they did, what they didn't do in terms of experience. And then we run and expect that, for example, let's say someone has this misdiagnosis claim in Ohio. How are the, the firms that we have in Ohio, let's say 25 firms uh, doing when it comes to payouts? We use the same models that we use to understand the, the expected payout of the plaintiff. We use it on each claim of the attorneys. And we understand if they have been getting above average or below average was expected for that claim in that type of claim. So we know if they are performing, someone may, may be performing super well on uh, baby brain injury claims uh, when it comes to medical malpractice, but not in cancer misdiagnosis. And that's for a lot of reasons, right? Because uh, those claims tend to have very different payouts when it comes to other types of medical practice claims. It might have to do with the expertise they have in-house. It might have to do with their previous experience on you know, how much a claim should settle for. So we're understanding and underwriting the law firms, if you will. And then we make this connection. Tell me about that. Tell me the user experience from an attorney's perspective. I am that medical malpractice attorney, that personal injury attorney in Dayton, Ohio. How do you work with me? Yeah, so if you have never heard about us, we might call you one day out of the blue. I just say, hey, we saw you, you, you know, you have some states have e-file systems. So you see, you know, who is litigating the most, who is more active in which areas. So you might get a call from us out of the blue and say, hey, we identify you as a potential referral for a claim that we are dealing with right now. Would it be interesting learning about it and learning about our system or platform, which is often how these attorneys work anyways. We try to change the least amount we can, our processes from what the attorneys are used to. And because uh, basically makes it easier for everyone. And then they might say, sure. So we tell them, you know, we are bringing this claim on behalf of, and then we have a client attorney who's working with us. Because as you might know, like we, we cannot refer claims ourselves directly. We have to work through attorneys to do that. And the attorneys are the ones officially referring the claims. But then we call this attorney. We ask them for some data points to, to allow us to, to underwrite them. And when we do that, we now know and have this attorney in the system. When you say underwrite them, what do you mean by that specifically? It's basically getting data from average outcomes they've been getting and you know, data from claims they've been doing in the past, active claims. Uh, and then we understand what they are focusing the most on and what they do best. And then when we know this information, we now have this attorney in the system. The next time we have a claim, let's say this attorney is above the average for cancer misdiagnosis, just since we were using this example. And then we're going to refer claims to this attorney when it comes to the, their specialty. And then they look at the claim, they get the full package. They don't even right now have to use the software. We send them PDF with the plaintiff's information, another PDF with the medical data, another PDF with all the details that we got related to the case. And they get it almost as a docket of, of you know, information on, on the plaintiff, all virtual. And then they make a decision if they want to retain that plaintiff or not. If they do, great. They work with that plaintiff. Uh, if they don't, it's you know it's fine too. They don't have to. They can keep getting more claims. Us knowing that that type of claim, maybe it's not that interesting for them. And did I read too that you share in the settlement rather than charging the attorney up front for connecting them with the client? Just point gets paid when the case is resolved. Exactly, and this is such an interesting space because um, it used to be very complicated to do this in the past. And now there was some recent change in regulation that allows us to actually get a part of the claim. Arizona is one of the, what was the first. Are you an Arizona company? We are working through Arizona companies in, in Arizona that we can work through. But you're right. So in the past, you could not, as a non-lawyer, you cannot split fees, right? And now you can't through Arizona. So we do this all through Arizona. 
and then we can align the incentives. Because the way that we see it is that if you charge up front for the leads, you're not going to do good service for the plaintiff because then now you, you just recreate all the billboards. You're going to send the plaintiff to those who are willing to pay the most for the lead, not necessarily to those who are more likely to win that claim and who are likely to get the most for that claim. When we decide to make this business decision in which we get paid only if the settlement wins and if um, you know a percentage of it, so the, the best it is for the plaintiff, the best it is for us, we're aligning the incentives with the plaintiffs and the attorneys. We tell the attorneys, hey, we're going to send you leads. You don't have to pay us unless it is something that gives you money. So we incentivize them to look at the leads and pay attention to them before just quickly excluding them based on some quick parameters. And we also do more justice for the plaintiff because instead of just saying, hey, we're going to send you to this uh, attorney just because they're paying us the most, I don't know if they're going to win your claim or not. Now we really have a big incentive to make sure right, that get in the game. Sending, yeah. Is- it behooves you to pair them with the attorney you think is best for the job. If we don't, we're not going to get any money. Right. So the company is just going to fail. And to that point, let's talk about the technology. How did you start developing that? Do you have developers on staff? Do you outsource it to a dev shop? Yeah, so we have developers on staff. And that was the first thing that I needed because I'm not a developer. Even though I'm a research scientist, and I don't know how to write a single quote of, uh, <laughs> of anything. So I had to bring a co-founder who understood the space a lot. It actually was a, was a time-consuming process. I reached out to 200 people on LinkedIn who were at big companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon and knew a lot about how to build the systems, machine learning specifically, and then ended up talking to a lot of them, worked with 11 of them, ended up with my co-founder who was formerly at Google. So he was a guy who knows a lot about machine learning. He was building the search engines at Google. He was building Google Chromecast and all those different projects that Google had. Um, and then he decided to actually first join as a, an advisor and then as a co-founder later on. And then we developed everything. He, he was the one who developed most of the models, but now we have more engineers in-house. And then he, he's not in, in, in the U.S. He's actually in Poland, which in the beginning was a little bit of a, a bummer for me because I wanted to be with someone who, you know, can just constantly discuss things and, you know, and debate and even, you know, go out to grab food with. But he was by far the best one we talked to. So then we brought him in-house, and he is our co-founder right now. And then when it comes to developers, we're distributed. So we have developers in the U.S., in Brazil, in Poland, in Ukraine, and a few different places. But everyone is in-house. Everyone's working for Just Point full-time. Just happened to be in the U.S. or outside of the U.S. How big is the team? So now we have 75 people. And how many of those are developers? It's about 12 of them. Chunk of the, the folks are developers. Another big chunk are these doctors who do the analysis of the claims. So that's kind of the, the two biggest departments that we have. How much administration then? You got doctors, you got developers. How, what are the other employee roles? So we have marketing, content. We separate content and marketing for now. And then we have the developers. And then we have you know, developers, designers and such. And the doctors and the, some lawyers as well. When we come back, Victor tells us how JustPoint raised money to get the business off the ground and why cold emails are still a viable way of making good connections. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. 
Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient, legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my conversation with Victor Bornstein in just a second. But before I do, I wanted to let you know if you go to tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for this episode and every other episode we do with more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. If you want to subscribe, you can find us pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. So when we left off with Victor, we heard about his team and the tech they're building to pair personal injury clients with the right attorney for their case. But hiring people and building tech ain't free. So Victor had to go out and look for money. When JustPoint was launched, Victor hadn't been in the U.S. for very long, so his network wasn't that big. But he still had to go out, knock on doors, and find money to build the company. And what we will hear is that many of JustPoint's first investors were cold calls. It was just us. It was a little tough. <laughs> you know, I was coming from recently having finished my PhD, in which you don't get paid much. You get paid like 30000 <laughs> a year in New York City. But it was, you know, 30000 a year to live in New York City in Manhattan. is a little expensive, you know. But then... We came without much reserves. I was lucky, to be honest, that my wife was supporting me a lot on building this company. And she said, you know, don't worry, we're not going to save money. We're going to go through the expenses a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I'm going to keep working and you can take your time to try to build this company. Of course, taking your time cannot mean 10 years, right? Because that, that's, right. not, that's not possible. And my co-founder was in the same situation. He was also has two kids. He's the sole provider of the family. So he did not have much time. So we gave ourselves a year. We said, you know, if we get some money within a year, we can keep the company going. If we don't, we just burning through expenses. It doesn't make much sense, you know. And this was 2018. You started 2018, right? 2018. Yeah, exactly. And that was, I was leaving a job that was, you know, a very cushy job, nice with all the benefits working for the hospital. He was also leaving Google, which is also, you know, a nice, nice job in terms of benefits to now bootstrap. So it was, uh, we wanted to give ourselves some time. So in this one year, we tried to develop the, the insurance side of the business, as I mentioned to you earlier, that working, developing software for insurance companies. And we also developed the whole machine learning, the initial machine learning that we started using. At that point, we realized that insurance companies were not going to be the best target, and we pivoted for plaintiff law firms. And we started to see some traction on the interest on using the software. And the, and the original idea was not, the current business because we couldn't split fees back then before there was a lot change, but we were building software for plaintiff attorneys and we started seeing some interests um, that they were seeing, you know, this is interesting. Uh, you can probably help us intake claims faster. And at that point, when we started seeing some movement forward um, when it comes to like investor inter uh, client interest, we reached out to some investors and we took the first fundraising it was the first time there was ever fundraising. So it was very clunky and it took us a lot of learning to actually make it work. I remember our deadline was was August 1st for getting the first check-in so we would have money. So we would stop bootstrapping if we didn't have money until August 1st of 2019. And we got money, the first check-in from an investor about three weeks before our deadline. So it was, it was nice. It worked well. How much did you raise in this seed round? In the, the first check-in was a small check, just, you know, 50K. But it gives us 
some optimism. And then we kept raising. That round we raised, we, we raised for one year. We just were getting a little bit more money in here and there. I was not honestly focusing too much on fundraising because I had to also build the business. Sure, yeah, exactly. And fundraising becomes a full-time job. Yeah, I don't think people understand that. If you're spending time raising money, you're not spending time actually building the business. I think people overlook that. It's very time-consuming, and you have to do it quickly. We didn't, so I could actually go back and, and do sales as well. And because of that, the fundraising took basically a year. So we raised a million during this one year. So from August 2019 until the summer of 2020. And I saw, too, half the money you raised was from cold calls, people you didn't know. Yes, exactly. You know, it was challenging because coming from Brazil was one thing I didn't have. My network was not here. My network was mostly in Brazil. And the other thing is that my network here were scientists who were also with that, you know, <laughs> trying to, right. be, not with like Wall Street jobs yet. And now, now them, so, now, now, nowadays, some of them do have these you know, nice jobs, but back then they didn't. So it was, very, it was very challenging for me to use my network. So we didn't have friends and family investing, which is often your first resource. And I had to cold call a lot of people who I knew had the interest in the space and had the money to invest. It was an interesting process of having to cold call people and pitch them what we're doing. It was very formative for the company, though. How did you identify who you were going to cold call? So it was interesting. So, you know, some of the people who we first cold called have done something similar to what we did, just in a different space. So, for example, when we were thinking about doing the insurance, helping with the insurance company side of things, I reached out to a lot of people who had built insurance companies. So, for example, I reached out to the founder of Clover Health, to the founder of Oscar, to the founder of Lemonade, to the founder of Hippo. And it was uh, an email to the CEO often saying, hey, uh, this is what I'm trying to build. I know you built something similar. would love to hear your thoughts. You know, we're also looking for investors, you know, but regardless of the investment side of things, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I was surprised, but out of the 10 people who I cold emailed of these, you know, big CEOs of unicorn companies, five of them replied, so half of them. So it was a nice, nice conversion rate. Uh, so people are willing to help. I feel like often you might be reluctant to ask for help for the CEO of the company, but um, I guess because they often don't get asked, they don't, they reply to the times they, people ask them for help. One of the founders uh, that reached out then reinvested. So the founder of Clover Health ended up helping us become an advisor and, and invest in the company. So we ended up paying out. Initially at this point, when you're doing your seed round and calling these CEOs, you're trying to develop a platform that you're going to sell to insurance companies. You've indicated a couple of times Insurance companies literally weren't buying it. What was the objection? Honestly, just it wasn't that interesting for them. We said, you know, we can help you do the diligence faster of the claims and understand if you want to send to a law firm or not. And I feel that's not what brings the money in. And I feel like whenever you are building a company, if you can touch the bottom line, you can really impact the revenue of a company. I feel like they're going to be all years. If you can cut costs, this is interesting too. But cutting costs, from my experience, is not as interesting as increasing revenue and increasing your business. So for the insurance companies, we were helping them decrease exposure on the claims they had and understanding decreasing their costs on the legal counsel they had because they would be more efficient, which is interesting. It's just not interesting enough for them to prioritize those calls over other calls they might be having. For the plaintiff law firms, we're telling them we're going to bring you new business claims you would not have otherwise so that side of the business just moved much faster just because we're really affecting the revenue of those firms versus cutting the cost of the insurance companies. Interesting. Very interesting. I like that. When you pitch an idea, you get more traction saying you can increase revenue versus cutting costs, which 
kind of glass half empty, glass half full kind of thing. That's interesting. So you, you did your seed round. You switched gears a little bit. You said, we're going to sell to plaintiff's counsel. Then you got a line of credit a year or two ago for $50 million. Why did you decide to do that versus going out and finding more money? Yeah, so venture capital is great, but it's expensive. You know, because in the end, you're selling a part of your company, right? But let's say if every round you sell from 20 to 30% of your company, plus you still have stock option pools that you have to, you know, you're going to give to employees. You're giving away a big chunk of your company that if you believe that it's going to work in the future, you will do everything you can to not give it away too much. Because right. <laughs> uh, in the end, you know, this might be, if you have a valuation of, you know, a couple of million right now, you could have a couple of billion in several years. So that's going to make a big difference. So the idea is that if we kept raising a lot of money just based on from venture capital firms, we would have to sell a lot of the company versus being able to get a lot of credit, especially because as we get the payouts, our future payouts of claims, lines of credits are helpful because they bring that future money that we will receive in the future to the present. And it's very common in the legal spaces in the form of litigation funding. So we talked to a few of those folks and then they were willing to give us basically access to capital at good terms, the better terms than the venture Yeah, it's folks. right up litigation funding, right up their alley. So that, that makes complete sense. Exactly. But then again, you did ultimately not too long ago raise what? I saw 6.9 million bucks. Yeah, that just happened. We closed it about a, a month ago. And why did you do that? If you already had this line of credit, you want to try to keep as much ownership as possible. Why did you decide to go out and get more investors? Yeah, great question. So the line of credit is great, but it gives us some limitation on what we can use the money for. So we can use the money for growth. We can use the money for marketing, but we cannot necessarily use the money so easily for uh, programmers and doing the rebranding of the company, all these like longer term things. The terms are such that we can use that line of credit for things that are directly leading to more claims, but not necessarily to programmers and marketing and long-term marketing vision. So then we decided to raise that money to be able to focus on those longer term things. Makes sense. So what's the future hold for JustPoint? What's next on the roadmap? The future, I could tell you like the vision that we have and then kind of walk backwards. I see a world in which people can select their attorneys based on their expected outcomes. And that's, um, of course, there's a lot of machine learning to build. There's a lot of processes to change, especially medical malpractice and personal injury and sexual assault. It's very difficult to know who you're choosing and who you choose really determines the kind of output they're going to have. My family, we needed attorneys in five different points in the last three generations. We had five different violations of human rights in the last three generations, which is crazy when you think about it. But then we see that the attorneys that we ended up with really influenced a lot, whether we got to see any results from those lawsuits or not. Uh, so I would like to bring this to the personal injury space as well, a more objective way of choosing attorneys and growing the platform to become the main way of choosing personal injury attorneys. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of software you have to build together. There's a lot of integrations you have to build. We're also helping the attorneys work more efficiently. We are building our CRM so they can seamlessly choose claims that we are sending over to them and also use that CRM to, uh, as any discovery tool that we're building as well. Because the discovery tools, as you, you know very well, have existed in a lot of spaces in law, but in personal injury, they haven't been very adopted. So the idea is like, they haven't been very adopted because the software, is, the software that has been built is not as advanced in other spaces of law. So we're building that software so that we can empower the attorneys as well, so we can work more efficiently. So the, the vision is a fully integrated experience for both the attorneys and the plaintiffs. So they can get in, they get to the platform, they get on their, uh, our logged area on the website, 
they see their claim progressing and they can add information. For the lawyer's side, it's very easy to use the platform to get claims, but also to understand the discovery on claims, request medical data, and the whole kind of the case they have to do. So that's the vision as we have on the mission side and also on the product side for JustPoint. And it might take a couple of years, but um, you know we, we, we have time. Excellent. Victor, appreciate your time today. If people want to learn more about you, get in touch with you, learn about JustPoint, how do you want them to do that? So JustPoint is JustPoint.com. So it's very simple, JustPoint.com. We're also very active on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, you can search my name, Victor Bornstein, or you can also add a company on LinkedIn. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.